together today and, and open up a, a new book and think about uh, its meaning for our lives. I'm just going to ask that you help us begin well. Uh, this is an important uh, book of the Bible. Uh, it, it has been significantly used historically. And I, I believe that you're going to use it for us as a body of people, and you're going to use it for each one of us individually. And so, God, I'm just going to ask that you be with us as we begin this study. Um, I'm also going to ask that you would just stir up a hunger in this body for the Word. Lord, um, I know we're, we're living in a busy, busy time, and yet it's really through, through this just slow crawl into your Word that I think you become very real to us. And so I'm just going to pray that, uh, that you would stir up a hunger here in our body for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's say it together. Amen. All right, we're just going to start off a kind of high, kind of high view. We're going to get about 30,000 feet above the book of Romans today, and we're going to ask a couple of questions. And the first question I always like to start off with is, like, what, what is Romans? What is Romans? How would I explain that to someone? So the, the, the most simple answer to that question is, well, Romans is a book of the Bible. Duh. Uh, we, know, we know that. Um, but what, is, what does that mean? Well, we know that it's not just a book of the Bible, but it's, it's actually one of the epistles. And, and the word epistle is just a fancy name or kind of a Latin name for the word letter. So when you're reading Romans, uh, as with other epistles, whether it's Colossians or Galatians or, or Philippians, what we're reading are, are letters that are written predominantly by Paul to groups of Christians living in particular towns, all right? So when I say to someone, turn to the book of Philippians, what I'm really saying is, hey, let's take this letter that Paul wrote one time to people living in Philippi, and let's look at its meaning for our lives today. Or, hey, turn to the book of Colossians. What am I saying? Get this letter out. It's an actual letter that a group of people received a long time ago. They were living in Colossae, book of Romans. It's not just a book of the Bible. This is an actual letter that Paul wrote to Christians living in, in Rome. So I think we, we kind of want to get that into our heads. Significantly used historically. Um, yeah, I always kind of highlight the meaning of this book for uh, for, for Luther, because as, as part of the Lutheran tradition, I think one of the things that we come to know about Luther is the fact that he didn't begin his journey as a quote-unquote Lutheran. He began his journey as a Catholic monk. And during the time that he was a Catholic monk, he grew up under a, a theological system that to this day remains very much law-based, all right. So sometimes I'll hear people say to me, as long as you're Christian, it's fine. I don't wanna I don't wanna disagree with I don't wanna I don't wanna disagree with the the idea that Christianity as a whole is about belief in Jesus Christ, because it is. I have Baptist friends, I have Catholic friends, I have Presbyterian friends, I have friends from a variety of denominations. I don't say to them, Well, because you're not a Lutheran, you're going to hell. No. What I do recognize, though, is that just like a Hershey's bar has particular ingredients in it that are very different than a Snickers bar, that's very different, you know, from whatever, every denomination that's Christian still has within it ingredients that make it what it, it is, right? 
And so do those ingredients matter? Well, if it's a candy bar, it affects the taste. That's about it, right? I can say, I liked it, I'll get it again. Or I didn't like it, I won't get it again. When it's, when it's theology, the ingredients actually can have a pretty significant impact upon the way I understand who Jesus is, the way I understand what does it mean for me to, to, to be saved. It, it can impact all of that, right? Um, I stay aware of that uh, on, a, on a regular basis. I'm trying to listen to a variety of preachers across this country. And as I'm listening to them, um, someone might say, well, they're all Christians. I'm like, yes, they are. But their, their theology, those ingredients come out when I listen to them speak and I listen to them preach. Do they matter? Look, I mean, what's the big deal? Do they matter? Yeah, they, they actually do matter in some cases pretty significantly. So, so Luther grows up and the ingredients that he grows up under are the, are the ingredients that make up the theological system of the Roman Catholic Church. In a nutshell, in a simple nutshell, Catholicism begins with the idea that in the garden, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, right, they damaged their relationship with God. So when you start, the, when you start off, you start off in this world as a person who has a, has a damaged soul. You aren't fully in relationship with God. Catholicism, however, would say you still retain a part of that original creation, the ability to work together with God. A good, a good part of you is still left. This is Roman Catholic theology. And so what the Catholic Church does on a regular basis, they say, well, because that's true, we, the Catholic Church, are going to give to you, through our sacraments, this stuff called grace. I always picture it as though I'm going to church and you take communion, John, and I, the priest goes, Shh, I give some grace right there. Not grease, grace, right? Uh, or, you know, Neil's over here, you, you get married. Marriage is a sacrament in the Catholic Church. Whoosh, whoosh, you both get a little bit of grace, right? Um, I get confirmed. I get confirmed. Pat gets confirmed, and so the Catholic Church goes, you get a little bit of grace. There are seven sacraments in the Catholic Church. Each time I participate in one of those seven, I get a shot of grace. What does that grace do for me? It allows the good part of my soul to cooperatively work together with God for my salvation. How am I saved? You work together with God for your salvation. Now, Luther grew up with that. And he was tortured by it. Because in the back of his head was always this voice that said, but you're not doing enough. You continue to sin. You must ask for forgiveness. So much so that during the time that Luther is a monk, he's given a confessor. Confessor would be someone assigned to you to listen to your confessions when you are ready to say, I'm a sinner. Okay? So, Bob, I'm your confessor. What that means is any time of the day or night when you sin, you, call, you can call me up and I'll, I'll listen to your confession and I'll absolve you in the name of Jesus Christ. All right? By the way, is confession one of the seven sacraments? It is. So I'm going to give you a shot of grace if you call me. Well, the problem with Luther is Luther, he, 
he couldn't sleep because all night and all day, all he could think about was, I just sinned again. So he would call his confessor all day and all night, like at two in the morning. Hey, I just sinned again. How could you sin? It's two in the morning. Why don't you sleep? I couldn't sleep. I got up and I had this thought. I sinned. Okay, I'll be down there and I'll hear your confession. About 5 a.m., get another call. I just sinned again. My gosh. How, how often are you going to sin? Why well, you just keep sinning all the time? I, and I got to confess because what if I died and I didn't confess that sin? Then that's in the way of, of my salvation. So much so that his confessor, his confessor, listen, the guy that's assigned to work with him is saying to him, you, you have to stop this. You're, you're going to, can't, I can't survive this. I can't survive you. You are driving me insane. I can't sleep. I have no time to do anything but listen to your confessions. Are you that biggest, biggest sinner? Luther would be like, yes, I am. He's terrified that if I don't do enough, I might die and I'm left without hope, right? That's the theo- theological system he grew up under. When you start to, to read Luther's works, there's many volumes of them. What you're reading are his lectures. He, Luther became, as you know, a professor in the Catholic system. Um, and as he begins to teach, he begins to lecture on books of the Bible. And you can start to see him in, in his early years, wavering, starting to ask questions. Is that right? Is it right that if I don't confess this sin and I die, I'm going to hell? Is that right? Is it right that you can buy forgiveness of sins in advance? Is that right? Is it right that I should just pray to this, to, 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 to this saint? Is that right? He's struggling. He's wrestling. The thing that he's wrestling with the most is the differentiation between grace and works. What is it that changes Luther more than anything else? Well, as you read his early writings, it is his study and teaching on the book of Romans. Romans, of all the books of the Bible, is one that's going to cause you to have to come to grips with what does it mean to have faith in Jesus Christ. Who starts that process, you or him? Um, As you live under grace, what does it mean for you? So I sinned and I didn't ask for, for forgiveness and I die. Do I go to hell? Romans answers a lot of these questions. Um, who is saved? Who, when the Bible talks about the elect and it talks about the elect, what, who are the elect? Um, what does it mean to be elected? What does it mean to not be one of the elect? How did that happen? Okay, so um, what I want you to recognize is that throughout history, as we study the lives of theologians, this is a book that has impacted just about every significant theologian you can name, including our, our own Luther. And I would say that Romans became the light that really opened Luther's eyes to what it means to live under grace. Um, as a result, when I, when I went to seminary, I can still remember one of the professors saying to me, if I could recommend one book for you to read each year, every year of your entire ministry, it's this book, Romans. Be like, really? You think that would be good? Yes. Do you read it? I read Romans every 
year. I've read it every year of my entire ministry life. Doesn't it get boring? I still don't understand it. You're my professor? You don't understand it? Not really. It's a deep book. And so there is some depth to it. I won't promise you that you're going to walk away and be able to say, man, I think I understand all that done with Romans. Uh, but, but I will promise you this. It will cause you to wrestle and it will cause you to grow. And it, it really is true that, you know, as a pastor, if there's one book of the Bible that you, you ought to come back to each year, it is this book of the Bible. How is Romans familiar to you? I call it coffee mug verses. Okay, so I do not want you to look any of these up. I just want you to kind of just, just watch this with me and kind of participate in this with me if you can. But Christianity, Christianity is a coffee mug sport, right? And many of us buy coffee mugs that have nice sayings on them. And many of them will have like a little scripture on them that come from books of the Bible that we lift up and we think, boy, I want to hold on to that thought. Well, Romans is probably familiar to most of us through these these key verses that over time you start to get into you. And you may or may not be able to say these verses with me, but I think they'll at least be uh, familiar uh, to you. So uh, in Romans 3.23, we get this verse that says, See if you can say it with me. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, Glory, by the way, doxa means presence of God. I've sinned. Can I stand in your presence anymore, God? I'm fallen short of being able to stand in your presence. I can't stand there anymore. Moses goes up onto the mountain and he cannot look at God. Only God's shadow. And he cannot because I am not holy. I can't stand in your presence, God. John, as he writes the Revelation, chapter 1, the very beginning of it, falls on his face before God. Literally, the book says, as if he were dead. I am a dead man in your sight. I cannot stand in your presence, God. It's a picture of human beings, right? Prior to their salvation, or even within their salvation, the acknowledgement that the only way I can stand before you, God, is through and in my relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what allows me to stand in your presence, that relationship, okay? We rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, Okay, uh, great coffee mug verse, a uh, great verse to kind of get inside of yourself, particularly if you're going through struggling and you're saying to yourself, I hate this, this time in my life, I want it to be over with. No, God is actually producing endurance. What is endurance? It's what I, it's what I get when I go over to the health club and they tell me, you're going to ride for 32 miles this morning in one hour. And I go, oh, really? 32 miles in one hour? That sounds awesome. And I'm dying. Isn't that right, Katie? We're dying out of that thing. We're like, <gasps> it's what the Nebraska linemen need, endurance, right? Uh, it'll keep you going. So God, when he's God doesn't just look at us in our suffering times and say, ah, yeah, whatever. No, he's like, no, okay, I'm going to build you because I see where you're weak. I see what you need. I'm going to build you you up. And that will produce, ultimately, it will change your character. It will change who you are. You will become a new person. 
and that character produces hope. You'll become a person of hope. And uh, so it's a, it's again, it's kind of a theological, uh, you know, picture that that's painted for us of who who we are in times of suffering. How about this one? Just as sin entered the world through one man, and through that man death, so also through one man Jesus Christ life. And so this picture of one man, one man, both have affected the entirety of humanity. The sin of Adam is upon us. And it's a theological perspective that we're going to have to get a handle on because we are very different than the Catholic Church. Our understanding of what happened when sin entered into this world and what it means to be a sinner is very different than the Catholic Church. It's very different than the Methodist Church. It's very different. And yet I believe it's very biblical, and we'll kind of come to grips with this through, through Romans. How about this one? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Beautiful picture. And what I'm trying to say to you here is that we kind of know, you, these are familiar to you, right? You kind of know Romans, but you're, you know it through, oh, I think I, went, I sat in a sermon one time and I heard something like that. Or I listened to a preacher and I heard something like that. And a little bit of that gets into you. Um, or faith cometh by hearing and hearing the word of God, right? How do I come to faith? How do I, how do I become a follower of Jesus Christ? These are all pieces of Romans. And, uh, and what I'm saying to you is we come to know Romans in a disparate way. In other words, I get this book, Romans, and I'm like, what, what is it? I know that, and I know that, or I've heard that, and I've heard that. What we miss is this right here, the whole of it. We miss the whole of it. So when you get up 30,000 feet high, what I like to do is say, what is it? Let's get a handle on the whole. This is the best way to think about Romans right here, house churches. Think about a house church. Today, when I use the term church, immediately the picture comes to our mind. It's a building. It's a place I go. There's a preacher there, preachers there, there's teachers there, there's Sunday school there, there's whatever there. Good coffee. And donuts. Which, by the way, I don't know if you guys caught this or not, but we held, a, we held our own personal rebellion right here this morning at about 6.30. We made the decision not to cut the little donuts in half. You eat them anyway. I'm like, listen, why are we cutting those things? Just leave them alone. They're fine. So we rebelled. So there's these good things at church, including the donuts. But what actually is church? So now I go over into the New Testament. I start reading. I'm like, well, what is church? Ecclesia. We've been talking about that through our entire study of the book of Acts. And the, the word is significant. Ec out of Ecclesia called the church isn't a building. It's people. We know that, right? It's the people ek called out of the world to follow Jesus Christ. You should look different than the world. Your lives should look different than the world. Your marriages should look different than the world. Why? You're called out of it so that you can go back into it and make a difference for it. House churches are how the church of Jesus Christ began, not with buildings, but with people. I want you to picture yourself as a part of a house church. What would that feel like? What would that look like? So what we know historically is house churches are typically groups of people no more than 50. No more than 50. Um, Roman homes, as a rule, homes in, in uh, the, the Jewish uh, regions would be small. They're little. They can't hold a lot of people. So typically you might have 8 to 10. Maybe you've got 
you know, four or five families that are forming uh, a church. Who is the pastor? Well, they had pastors, right? Um, the word elder in the Bible, presbyteros, is actually not an elder the way we think of it today. It's a pastor. It's someone who has had the hands of acknowledgement laid upon them uh, that you, you hold the, the, the gifts necessary to, to help lead this particular house church. Okay? When the house churches came together, true or false, they came together once a week and they held a worship service. False, right? The house church is, is a body of people that are committed to each other in such a way that we're actually going to do life together. And so when I picture the house church, what it means is we're coming together on one day and we're opening up the scriptures and we're talking about them together. We're having conversations about them. We're asking questions. We're putting, we're putting thoughts down about who, who is this, this Jesus Christ. We're worshiping. There's a sense in which we are, 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 are there to say, God, we need, we need you. We give our lives to you. Um, this is this is really hard for me pastorally. I find that that when Luke, when do you worship? For me, music is my is worship. It's huge for me. Um, listening to some other there's other preachers I'll listen to. It's huge for me because I I need it just as much as you need it to be able to say. Worship is a re- it's literally a releasing of yourself. God, I can't do this. I can't do it. I need you. Um, I, trust, I trust you. I have doubts, but I, I, I trust you. It's that. That's worship. And so this group of people, their intention isn't to have a worship service. Their intention is to worship. And they're coming together for that on a regular basis that's probably one of the days that we meet together there's another day we're going to meet together we're going to have psalms and prayers psalms and prayers we're going to pray we're going to pray for this community i often think about that missing element in in the church of 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 prayer that a group of people come together and come down before god and literally say god we so need you to affect this community. I'll tell you where I've experienced that more than anywhere here um, is in a little church, kind of the downtown area called Codero, Iglesia Codero. And uh, it's a Spanish church. Um, when I first moved here, I had the opportunity to, to become the vacancy pastor for Cordero. And so I would preach here our services, get in the car, drive over, drive downtown, and uh, then I'd go in and preach at Cordero. When you preach in Spanish, it's kind of interesting because you have this little group of people who they talk back to you while you preach, right? Uh, and, and and they laugh at you because you know, I'm a gringo trying to speak Spanish, so then I'll say something that's not exactly the way you might say it in Spanish. They, they, they kind of laugh a little bit like that. Um, I would mix English in because the kids they speak they speak English, and I would come to real I'd be like realizing you know this group of people here they they really have a powerful faith, and so I said you know what we're just gonna we're gonna pray differently here, 
And I want everybody to come up. Everybody came, comes up to the altar at Cordero. Let's all hold hands now. Let's pray. And um, I think if I did that here, we would have to use the defibrillator at least a couple of times. But they just came up. And they just come up and, and they start. Little kids, dads. I would watch and listen to them pray. And I would think to myself, my goodness, this is right. This is prayer. Praying for their community. They're praying for their families. Family is huge at Cordero, right? And uh, I think this is, this is so good. And I, I think in my, in my own gut, I'm like, well, it's hard for us to do that. It's just hard for us to do it. But that's the early church is um, we're praying for this neighbor. We're praying for this person here because we live in the community. We're part of it. We're just in a house. Around us are houses, and we're praying together. One of the days that we come together, we prepare to go into the Agora and into the synagogue. Here's what I mean by that. I'm going to guess the majority of you would be a little bit intimidated if I were to say to you, today we're going to prepare to go uh, into our community, knock on doors, and talk to people about Jesus. I'm going to guess that you'd be intimidated by that. You'd be like, well, what, what time was that? Yeah, we got something going on there. Can't make that. Sorry about that. It's just it's part of our human nature, right? It's scary for us. What the what the early church knew is this is how do how are you gonna how is God gonna grow a church through you? Are you are you gonna put a sign out on your front lawn that says everyone welcome come to worship? Uh, no, that ain't gonna work, right? So what are we gonna do? Well, where we live, where we work, where we play, we're gonna be talking about Jesus Christ. How do we do that? And then together, we're going to come together. We're going to go out into the marketplace. You're going to talk to this guy, and you're going to talk to that guy. So there, fear, fear will drive you towards, it will make you hungry for preparation. So you're actually coming together going, I need to know, how do I explain to a Jew that, that Jesus is the Messiah? How do I do that? Because this is hard stuff. I mean, would, would you know how to do that? So that's what they're doing. They're saying, show me how to get Isaiah to speak to this Jewish person. And how does Jeremiah fit into that thing? And is this little thing over here in Amos actually connect? And so what's happening is, yes, this all comes together and connects. They're preparing to do that. Okay, we're going to be in the Agora, the marketplace. They don't know who Jesus is. They have weird gods. And we need to understand those weird gods and really what's driving their lives. And we need to help introduce. How do we do that? They're preparing. Okay. So I'm saying all this for a reason. What I want you to know is when you're talking about Romans, what is it? Well, here's, here's Paul, and he says, we've got this, these home churches in Rome, and I need to strengthen them. And for me to strengthen them, there's things they need to be really clear about theologically, and there's things that are going to be problem spots for them, and I want to, I want to address those things. And so what would happen, the way that Romans would be received is it would actually be brought into Rome, uh, in this case by a carrier. The carrier would announce to the home churches, Paul has sent a letter to us. We would then gather together. Like this group here, we would be several home churches gathered together. And what would happen is now this, this letter of Paul's would be read out loud to all of us. Okay? 
That's how you would first hear Romans. Now, because scrolls are not, you can't just go down and have them copied at copycat. You, these things are a hand. So it's a handwritten letter. We can't just create copies. Eventually, we would create some copies and distribute. But initially, it's just this is an oral, oral book. It's received by hearing, and the church is listening to it. And the whole of the church is not experiencing Romans disparately. It's not just a bunch of verses over here. It's a whole book in which they feel a Paul saying to them, I get it. There's places you need to be strengthened, and I'm going to do that for you. Okay? So kind of have that in your mind. The win of, of Romans is kind of interesting to me because it forces you back into uh, the book of Acts. And uh, as you go through it, Remember with me, Acts chapter 19 is, is, is situated at the third leg of, of Paul's missionary journey. Um, Apollos is in Corinth. Uh, Paul enters into Ephesus and begins to, to teach. And as we go through the first part of chapter 19, you know, what's Paul doing? Well, he's getting the church ready for warfare. He's entering them into the synagogue. He spends two years and the Hall of Tyrannus teaching, okay? He says Ephesus. Um, this incident occurs uh, that gets everybody's attention uh, that has to do with demonic possession. And then you get to verses 20 and 21 of chapter 19, which become the impetus for the book of Romans. Uh, so I'll, I'll read those for you. If you have your Bibles, just look at 20 and, and, and 21. Um, uh, this riot takes place in Ephesus. Uh, we're getting towards the end of his time there. And go to, just go to verse uh, 20. It reads, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these things, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Always remember Acts that we just finished that study. It's kind of a road map for where Paul goes. And what we know is that while Paul's in Ephesus, he's making the statement to the people there, I've got to go to Rome. First I need to stop in Jerusalem. Remember with me that he's carrying this, this collection, this offering that's been taken for the church in Jerusalem. What he's saying is, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to drop this money off, we're going to spend a little bit of time there, then we're going to go on to Rome. Does he ever get to Rome? Well, having studied Acts, we kind of know the answer to that question is yes and no. Here, he really intends, like, I'm going to go here, then I'm going to go there. That does not happen, right? He does get to Rome. But ultimately, he gets to Rome how? As a prisoner, right? He'll, he'll be conducted to Rome, held, held under charges against him to be heard by Caesar, okay? So where I want to place this is in Acts chapter 20, he, he gets into Greece, right? He's made it that far. And Greece is, of course, a regional term where he actually is located is Corinth, about 55 AD. Here's what we believe. Paul is writing this letter back to Rome, which he hasn't been to, intends to go to, about 55 AD. Okay. 
So place that historically, and remember with me that we're less than we're less than 15 years away from the fall of the Christian Church under the hand of Rome. Right? We're less than 15 years away from a period of highly and intense persecution of the church. And so Paul is kind of nearing the end of his years in ministry. He's in Corinth, says, I'm going to get to Rome, but I can't get there right now. Before I go, I'm going to write this letter because I need to strengthen the people. How does he know that? How does he know he needs to strengthen the people? Kind of watch this. This church in Rome, it already exists. It was formed during the Diaspora in about 40 AD, right? So the home church in Rome is about 15 years old. Okay. Paul meets, believe it or not, back in Acts chapter 18, two people, Priscilla and Aquila. You may or may not remember this story, but Priscilla and Aquila happened to be Jews forced out of Rome about 49 A.D. by the Emperor Claudius. So see where we are. About 49 A.D., so we're about six years ahead of the writing of the, the, the letter to Rome. These two people, Priscilla and Aquila, are forced out of Rome. They know Rome very well because they lived there. They meet up with Paul because their profession is what? They're tent makers. What was Paul? The tent maker. They came together. Ultimately, these two people will become very important to Paul's public ministry. But it's through these two people that they begin to talk to him about Rome. 49 AD, they're saying it's not good there. It's dark there. There's, there's warfare going on there. And you need to do something. Paul, Paul goes, well, I want to get there, but I can't get there now. So I'm going to write this letter to them. And so in the end, there's two key things that are going to go on in this letter. Number one, Paul is saying, I want to strengthen the church for warfare, okay? Because it's happening. And secondly, I want to get them ready for mission work. And one of the things I think we'll see throughout the book of Romans is its missional nature. It is meant to send us out into our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, as we just kind of start our journey into this book of Romans. Um, I'm excited just to peel it open and to see the way you'll use it in us. Paul writes it out of conviction. There's darkness. There's warfare. I think that's true right here in Grand Island right now. There's darkness. There's warfare. We need these words today. Lord, uh, encourage us through them, we pray. Send us out into this week celebration of Thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys,